a topic that is uh, timely, that is pressing, that is of interest to all of us in this room. And we're really privileged to hear tonight from two educators, scholars, and just incredibly thoughtful and inspiring women who tonight will be discussing the ethical challenges and moral potential of education through anecdotes, through conversation, and through experiences on the ground. Uh, having spent some years, 10 years in the classroom, and now in a space where, as an educator, I have to step back and, in the classroom environment and can reflect. I know full well that the challenges are many, uh, but so are the opportunities. And knowing both Alana and Deborah personally, uh, I'm really looking forward to tonight's conversation. Tonight is dedicated in special memory of Terry Satchnover Fagan, a supporter of Torah, supporter of institutions of higher learning, of Jewish institutions, of Drisha, of Beit Rabban, as well as many other educational institutions, uh, communal institutions, and we're privileged and honored that tonight's event is in her memory and honor. Dr. Alana Blumberg currently teaches at the Department of English, Bar-Ilan University, where she directs the Shane D. Rudolph Graduate Program in Creative Writing. She's the author of The Victorian Sacrifice and of Houses of Study, A Jewish Woman Among Books. And we're thrilled tonight to be celebrating her third book, uh, and Mazal Tov, tonight's event, Open Your Hand, Teaching as a Jew, Teaching as an American, just released November 1st. Dr. Devorah Steinmetz serves on the faculty of Grisha in the United States and in Israel, as well as on the faculty of the Mandel Institute for Nonprofit Leadership. She's the founder of Beit Rabban, profiled in Daniel Pekarsky's Vision at Work, the Theory and Practice of Beit Rabban, and she's the author of scholarly books and articles on Talmud, Midrash, and the Bible. And we're thrilled tonight to be able to have this engage in this conversation, and it will be a conversation, and then we will open it up for Q&A for discussion, questions from the crowd. Uh, after which, after conversation, an informal conversation, we will move over, Alana will be signing um, and selling her book tonight. So thank you all for coming, for making that. I know that the last few days have been tumultuous and exhausting for so many, and it's really just a real honor that we are able to have this conversation together with everyone. Thank you both. Sri Lana, <laughs> welcome. It's um, it's so exciting to be celebrating your your book, and um, I guess this is going to be for sale afterwards, and we'll be signing copies. Um, so I have a very vivid memory of something that you actually describe in the book, uh, which is that about 25, 26 years ago, I was sitting in what uh, was pretended to be my office in the new uh, Beit Rabban Day School, and I got a phone call. Uh, and it was a very unusual phone call, and it went something like this. Hi, um, Beit Rabban at the time was in the SAJ uh, building right across the park, and the phone call went like this. Hi, my name is Ilana Blumberg. I'm a student of Barnard College. I teach in SAJ Hebrew School. I saw your school's bulletin boards, and I want to teach in your school. That's <laughs> um, pretty close to verbatim and pretty close to the way you remember it as well. Um, it was an unusual phone call for somebody to uh, well, first of all, for somebody in college to think that she could actually get to teach, um, and secondly, for somebody to imagine that by looking at a bulletin board, they could see uh, something so different and so inspiring that they wanted to be a part of it. So that was, I think, the first time we uh, encountered each other, and I've been following your career ever since, and it's, it's really um, a thrill to, to be celebrating your book tonight. Um, the book is both extremely important and a delight, uh, delight to read. So thank you for, for giving that all to us. Um, 
So let's start writing. Um, Ilana, your book is prompted, um, you, as you describe in the book and as you've told me, uh, by a crisis that you experienced teaching in a Midwestern university. Um, you write in your book, um, I had been teaching with the belief that there was no meaningful education without ethics and that the deepest purpose of teaching and studying, particularly the humanities, was not self-advancement or personal pleasure, but the transformation of a world in urgent need of intelligent, sustained care. Um, yet your students, as it turns out, did not share that assumption. So can you tell us a little bit about how you discovered that your students didn't share that and what your reaction was to that discovery? Um, thank you, Devora. Um, it's a pleasure to be here and to be with all of you. Um, I'll jump into the story that Devorah is describing because it really was the moment at which I began to reconsider many things that had seemed obvious to me in the past. Um, I was teaching at Michigan State University and I had just gotten tenure and after you get tenure there's this moment where you think, I'm going to make up a new course. I'm going to teach something I've never taught before. And I said, I'd like to teach a course on truth-telling in American culture. And I said, I'll make some units in this course. I'll have a, a section on truth-telling in the military. I'll have a section on truth-telling and gender. I'll have a section on truth-telling and education. And as I made up this list, I was anticipating what would be controversial and what would be difficult to teach and difficult to work with, on, with students on. And I imagined that the military might be a subject that, um, you know, that would be a, a place where students would push back and would be concerned about looking at some of the myths that they had inherited as Americans and as young Americans. It never occurred to me that the most controversial, controversial subject we would cover would be education. Um, and what happened was we read a text that argued that American educational opportunity was not equal across the board. And that did not seem to me so much like an argument. That seemed to me pretty much like a fact. And we came back to the classroom and students said, First of all, this isn't true. Everybody has the chance to get a good education in this country. If you don't get a good education, it's because you don't want one. If you don't get a good education, it's because you're lazy, it's because your parents don't care. And particularly in this book that we had been reading, the argument was made that property taxes should be separated from, from the way that schools are funded. Um, and the students went crazy and they said, you know, the idea that just adding money to a system is going to make possibilities for young people is just crazy. And they, 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 they looked at me and they said, you can't just throw money at the problem. Money isn't going to make any difference. And we began to talk about what were the differences from one school to the next. And their attitude was that there was no hope for some groups of American society, unnamed but kind of clear, clear what the, who those groups were, and that it really wasn't their problem. That each individual is responsible for him or herself, and if someone doesn't pull himself up by, their, by his bootstraps, it's probably because he doesn't want a good education. And I remember thinking, as I was listening to all this, that the students had no sense that there were schools where it might be impossible to learn. And they didn't seem to think about the fact that they had come to a place like the university they were in, in part because of good fortune, in part because of what their parents had been able to offer them. And 
around the classroom, there was kind of a chorus of, it's not our problem. Those people can take care of themselves. And I remember after the class session, probably if anybody had visited the class session, they wouldn't have, have, have presumed that anything very dramatic was going on. But for me as a teacher, something very dramatic was going on. I was listening to this and I was thinking, I had put in a great deal of time working with these students on a variety of projects, individual projects that each of them had been working on writing. And I began to think to myself, why am I putting in all this time? What, what is the, the ethical code by which I'm operating when I give to these students when they don't seem to have the sense that they're ethically obligated elsewhere? Um, and, and it really was, for me, a crisis. So I want to follow up with that, uh, because clearly, um, from what you just described and what you write about in the book, um, you have the notion of teaching as a deeply ethical enterprise. And you're trying to cultivate certain ethical dispositions in your students, um, uh, dispositions, ultimately, that will open them up to a sense of responsibility toward others. And I'm wondering how you, um, in this particular situation, how you think about this in general, how you kind of work out the what could be really a fine line between um, teaching toward those ethical dispositions on the one hand um, and pushing toward uh, particular political orientations on the other hand. I think in general, um, very often education shies away um, from the notion of, of character development, which I think used to be a very core part of, mm -hmm. of education. Um, you know, on the on, from the fear that it will veer toward indoctrination or toward a particular ideology, religious or political. Mm -hmm. um, so, how do you how do you see how do you pull that apart? It's such an interesting question because over the weekend I was in Teaneck um, and speaking with just all kinds of uh, people that I that I didn't know, and I got a lot of feedback that American universities are understood to be places full of liberals who are pushing a liberal agenda, and they have no interest in anything but their own agenda and they want all their students to turn out just like them, and that they're just kind of left-wing bastions. Um, and I was really struck by this because I was thinking about individual teachers that I know in many universities and how critical it is for each one of them um, to foster habits of critical thought, to foster the capacity to read texts really closely and to understand their nuances and also to be able to articulate responses to those texts. And the account of American universities as bastions of liberal um, indoctrination did not ring true for me, only on the basis of these individuals that I knew who are teaching in these institutions. But I think what Deborah is asking about is really a very fair question. You know, if I have an idea of ethical behavior, um, how it, really where is the place in a public institution, in a secular institution? Um, for trying to mold character, for trying to take an ethical, an ethical um, ideal and impart it to students. And one of the elements of the crisis I'm describing was wondering if I'd been wrong to imagine that that was possible in a secular institution or in an institution that didn't take that as its primary aim. And I felt that if I had been wrong about that, then I was in the wrong place altogether because somehow, Without that, nothing seemed to matter much. And so I, I am pretty firmly convinced that there is something that's not indoctrination that is ethical 
um, that is a kind of ethical training that can go on in the classroom, but I don't think it has to do with the content of what's being taught in the classroom. And I think it has much more to do with the way a classroom runs. Um, and the kind of discourse that a classroom sustains and builds and asks students to participate in. And this is really a place where I can say, um, back to Devorah, that you know, this was a set of ideas that I learned from teaching at Beit Rabban, from teaching young children, from teaching at a Jewish school, particularly. And I took certain ideas about building discourse, and, and we can talk more about what that means, but about building a community and having certain values reflected through our practice in the classroom as an ethical practice, and that seems to me as far as possible from indoctrination, but central to building a kind of ethical character. Okay, we'll get back to that later. Okay. Um, yeah. I'm just gonna hear more about that and, and um, I'm talking more about that, but I wanna follow your storyline for, yeah. for a bit. Um, after or in the wake of this crisis in your teaching, uh, you decide to spend some time volunteering in an inner city public school in Detroit, a middle school that you call the Smith School. Um, and I thought perhaps you might share an excerpt from the book that um, gives us a, a taste, and I know it can be only a taste, um, of what you encountered uh, when you came to the Smith School. Um, and after that, if you would say something about what you were trying to accomplish, I mean, you weren't there all that much, but in your short amount of time, there, what you were trying to accomplish with the students there. I should say first that um, after this episode in the classroom at Michigan State, I really, I felt as if I wasn't sure what I was doing anymore, that I'd lost my rudder. And I wanted, as Deborah said, to, um, to find a place where I knew that whatever I was doing was something that couldn't be done by somebody else or wasn't going to be done by somebody else, where there was a gap and where there were people who were deserving of attention who weren't getting it. And so I actually, one of the things that I probably don't say enough about in the book is how difficult it was to get into a Detroit public school. It is incredibly difficult to gain access because nobody wants you to see the inside of a Detroit public school. Um, and when I finally was able to find my way into a school because of a connection that I had, a professor of education who introduced me to a teacher at the school, once I was in, nobody cared because the school had been forgotten by, by everyone. Um, you, know, you, you didn't even have to sign in. You got checked you know, through a security, a metal, metal detector, but nobody was paying attention. Um, and once I was in, I was in, but to get in was not so simple. And the work that I did over the course of about six months was weekly, I tried to meet with the same group of seven or eight kids who were seventh and eighth graders and do some kind of reading writing workshop with them. And you, you tell us, of course, that you never got the same seventh and eighth graders, right? That there was yeah. so much chaos that you never necessarily knew if you were going to see the kid again, right. even if they had shared their writing with you you want to follow up with them, they might not have been there next time. Right, so they might not have been at the school next time because often the heat, there was no heat in the winter, and so sometimes kids would just stay home if it had been too cold the day before. This is in Michigan in the winter. You know, I mean, you know what it feels like outside right now, so it was much worse, actually, because it was the middle of winter. And so sometimes they just wouldn't show up because they weren't sure if there would be heat. And if there was heat, sometimes it would be uncontrolled heat, so they'd have to open all the windows because it was 100 degrees in the building. And other times kids would just move, you know, change, change schools, change cities. And other times I'd get to school, but nobody would know where that kid was supposed to be. Um, so the level of chaos was unprecedented for me. And I nonetheless tried to 
do something useful each time I was there and kept my aims pretty small. Um, so I'm going to read a section about teaching a short poem by Pablo Neruda. And what I figured out very quickly in working with the students was that I didn't want to hand out sheets because they would get kind of crushed up and thrown on the floor and just made for more chaos. Um, so I would try to teach things we could learn by heart, and I wouldn't hand anything out at all. It's a very short poem. Pablo Neruda is my next poet at Smith. Smith is the, the name I give to the school. I bring my slim silver bilingual volume of Neruda, and when we settle around the table in the library, I'm eager to share this new voice with the students of two weeks ago, but only four of the eight faces are familiar. The other four I anticipated are absent from school today, and so at the doorway to Miss Ward's room, other students run to self-assign themselves, trailing the first ones out of the classroom without asking anyone's permission. Lisa, the teacher, does not stop the students, and I don't either, but I have to cut it off somewhere, and so the ninth and 10th kid trying to find their way out of the room don't make it. This feels terrible. I know the stakes are low, and yet leaving eager kids behind is not my business. Here in the dim, high-ceilinged, once-elegant library, I begin again. With four students new to the group, I feel I'm starting from the beginning. Lisa has described to me in the abstract the challenge that absences pose to continuous learning, but I feel it myself now. Each time I come back to Smith, I find myself surprised anew by the givens, the way they can set you back and make ordinary things you planned nearly impossible to carry out. Nothing to do but read. Thank goodness for other people's words. Pardon me if when I want to tell the story of my life, it's the land I talk about. This is the land. It grows in your blood and you grow. If it dies in your blood, you die out. It's not the original Spanish I know, but it still stops my breath. I read it aloud, once, twice. Somehow, when I read this, my thoughts turn to my buddy, my mother's mother. She was born in the early 20th century in New York City and died there at the very end of the century. Over the course of her life, she moved from the Lower East Side to the Upper East Side, and in less than an hour's time, the number two MTA bus could take her from the site of her old age back to the site of her youth. She had a land, soil from which she grew, a world in which she was recognizable to others and to herself, I think, too. I can't see her in my mind without seeing the streets of New York. Today at Smith, I want to build a concept of the land. I believe the students can write about this. Neruda is blessedly unspecific. He gives us those remarkable, simple world, words. His small, dense pile, almost all composed of just one syllable in English. Land, blood, grow, die, tell. I feel sure these kids can write back to him. The land is not synonymous with home. The land is something eerier, fuller, more conflictual. It isn't about beauty, just as it isn't about light. The land can be dim and troubled, and sometimes even despised. Still, it is the land. Separate me from it, and I am not the same person. Separate it from me, and I am diminished in some way. Even if it's not a good land, it is the story of my life. Even if it is not land at all, but cement and broken glass, weeds that seem to come from nowhere organic, chips of paint, glowing garbage, it is nonetheless the story of my life. We each have a story of our lives. This is our song today. As soon as I say maybe the land isn't necessarily a country, but a place that we grew up in, Deshaun gets it. The land, a homeland, that's what it is. Heads nod. We talk about the way the poem begins with an addressee, pardon me. There's someone the speaker's talking to, 
somebody we deduce who just might want to argue with the speaker to say it isn't so, but it is so, the speaker insists. Chelsea, who is new today, says that the one the speaker's talking to doesn't even talk back. That's right, I say. This poem is the speaker's turn. Pardon me, here I go. He don't care what nobody think. It's his turn, I say. Maybe there isn't even anyone specific he's talking to. Maybe he just feels he needs to speak his piece. Heads not again. We talk some more. We recite the poem out loud, once, twice. I want it to be your turn, I say. Write about your land. What's your land? This time it's quiet. This time I chose well. The time before I had not chosen so well. <laughs> 10 minutes pass of quiet writing, myself and the students. I gather them back at the two tables. Today, kids are willing to read out loud and they listen to each other with absolute attention. One day in 2004, I was about nine or 10 when my uncle Jeremy got shot and killed on Virginia Park. I still hang on to this because it happened so fast. Before my uncle got shot, he was holding a crazy conversation with me, but it wasn't that crazy. But a year after he died, my granny had died too, but just of age. I miss both of them, and they both just died on me so fast, it was crazy. But for me to get over that, I had to think positive about it. So it's not that sad to me anymore, but for sure I still love and miss them. Unique. Elijah writes that when he sees people fighting or getting killed, dead bodies, animals getting abused, it makes him sad. If it were up to him, he says, he would stop it all. Then Christina reads, and she begins by saying she thinks her land is really dangerous. Like last night, when she wanted to go to the store with her mom and sister, but there were police everywhere and flashing lights and something was going on two houses down. Her mom said, don't worry, but she was really scared. When Christina hands in her paper, I see a little note to me at the bottom of the page. Thanks for taking your time to read this. D reads, when he was 11 or 12, he saw a man get shot. The man could have gotten away, but instead he knocked on Dee's door to tell his mom to get out of the backyard. He died because he was thinking about Dee's brothers and sisters who were in the backyard. The kids were in the house already by the time the man was on the last stair. A car came from around the corner. The man fell down. He lay in the middle of the street, bleeding to death. Dee's mom put him in the car to take him to the doctor. When they got there, he was dead. I sit silent, listening. Our theme has turned to bloodshed. Of the eight seventh and eighth graders sitting beside me at these tables, six, I learn, have seen someone shot. Many of them know the person whom they saw shot, whether caught in crossfire or by target. A few mention that they saw these shootings from their own homes. Natural deaths and violent deaths merge, too, in their records of loss. Neruda's blood had been metaphor to me. Now I hear it differently. More important, I see it. Red blood, life blood, ER and ambulance blood, spilling, spreading, staining, impossible to staunch fast enough. I don't know what to say or do next. I'm teaching these kids as if something about what we're doing here, studying poetry, learning to write, makes sense in their lives. But nothing about it makes sense. I'm amazed that grammar and syntax survive to the extent they do in reports of this kind. If D and C and E don't get out of here, violence will catch up with them again. If not today, then tomorrow, next week, next month, next year. I'm sitting with children in the United States, less than an hour from my home, and there's no way I can protect them. They are already harmed secondhand. They have been assaulted, and they'll be assaulted again. Class time is coming to a close. I do what I'm used to doing. I read Neruda's poem again, aloud, twice. A few students say it with me the whole second time through. 
I thank the students for reading aloud, for trusting the group, for sharing their difficult experience and their thoughts. I bank on the fact that they can tell I mean what I say. I can't guess what this session has meant to them. At any rate, they have only been exposed to what they already knew. In their proximity to violence, they live a shared reality. The shock is my province alone. Some of them hand me their sheets, others leave them on the table. One boy crumples his paper up and shoots a basket. Their papers are precious to me, and I can't explain precisely why. I think it's because they're children, and this is the only way I can protect them, by protecting their fragile paper, their precious pencil markings. The papers seem like some extension of their bodies. I walk around, picking up the papers left behind. I don't know these kids. I'm not in their lives. I will not be in their lives. We come into contact for a moment. I'm 41. They are 12, 13, 14. This contact can only be extremely little to them. I know this, and I mourn it. But it is something to me. It's changing me. I don't know what the result will be, but I feel harder, less patient, more angry. I know again anew that we have obligations to others, especially children. The land makes demands on us. We owe something. That's the nature of our lives. I know it's actually much harder to read that out loud than to read it to myself. So you had asked what my hope was in well, going to the book. My what were your goals? And well, let's start with that. Yeah, I think. Um, on some level, my first goal was um, was somewhat self-serving. It was I wanted to see what this kind of school looked like. I really wanted not to just be reporting things I'd read or things I believed. I, I, I felt I imagined to be true. I imagined that schools in Detroit looked pretty bad. That seemed reasonable to me. Um, but when my students, you know, when my college students were saying, you know. Schools don't differ that much one to the next. Federal funds make up what local funds don't provide. You know, kids who are in schools like this just don't want to learn. All the different things they said, I thought to myself, I'd like to see this with my own eyes. I'd like to know what we're talking about here. So I wanted information. Um, and then once I'd seen the school for the first time, <coughs> I felt like I wanted to just use short bits of time usefully. And the reason was because one of the more shocking things I saw in this school, to me, more shocking, um, you know, of course, the heat is like a crazy fact um, that, that is just unthinkable. But on the other hand, on some level, something even more disturbing to me was the fact that in this school, on average, most kids had two or three school periods a day where no one was teaching them. And it was because a teacher hadn't shown up. And so if you think about schools that you know, you know, for the most part, if a teacher doesn't show up, there's a substitute. And it's not always the case that the substitute is fantastic and the kids don't always get all that they could out of the lesson, but something's happening. There is a premise that you're gonna still learn. But the policy in this school was that the kids who didn't have a teacher would just go climb into another classroom with other kids. And then the kids who did have a teacher and the kids who didn't have a teacher, none of them would learn. And the teacher would say, you don't bother me, I won't bother you. That was the phrase in the school. Um, and what it meant was that they could just hang out. And so they would just sit around. They would just sit around doing nothing. And somehow when I found this out, that this was a regular thing, two to three periods a day on average, 
I just felt like the floor fell out from beneath me, that that time was never coming back, and that these kids were being just absolutely abandoned, you know, that there was, there was no way to make that up. And so I had this feeling that if I come in and I do 45 minutes twice with two different groups of something, that's something. That's a poem. That's a something. Um, so I didn't have any grand... And, and it's telling them that their time and effort is worth something. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's simply like to make the clock matter, right. you know? I mean, all the clocks in the building were stopped, which was, you know, an extraordinary metaphor for what was going on there. They, no, nothing worked in the whole building. I mean, it was, it was so terrible, but, but the clocks literally had stopped ticking, and I just had this feeling like, let's get the clock ticking. Let, let's have time matter. And sometimes we'd come to the end of these sessions, and we were sitting in a library that had been locked up and not available for use for a long time. And the reason it had been unavailable for use was because Sam's Club had donated 10,000 books to the school, but they didn't have anything to do with the books because they had no staff to deal with it. So they just locked up a room full of zillions of cartons of books. And I remember the first time I saw it, I thought, just hand the books out. Just give them to the kids. Go, go home, take this, you know, because these kids don't own books. But it was just shut everything, every possibility that an energetic person might see and say, this is what you can do, those possibilities have been shut down already. So Elon, I want to share with you what my reaction was when I, when I um, last Shabbat read, reread your book. I had read it a couple of times in draft form, but I, I, I read it through uh, last Shabbat. And I actually came to the Shabbat table and read um, part of the excerpt that you just read. And um, I said, how do we get up in the morning and go about our business knowing that this is going on in, in our country? And, and it, it got me thinking to another um, incident in, in the book where you write about um, doing community service with the five and six-year-olds of Beit Rabat. Um, and the children have decided to work on homelessness. Um, and one of the things that, um, that we do is um, we invited in the, I forget his name, the fellow who founded New York Cares, right, the organization with the Statue of Liberty shivering in the, the, the posters on. And, um, and I remember how, how powerfully he spoke to the children, and I remember uh, in, in my recollection what was powerful about it was that he got the children to use their um, imaginations to think beyond um, that people need coats that people are creatures who need food, clothing, shelter, and to think about them as people. Um, and the children started thinking, well, then what do, they, what do they need? Of course they need coats and food. Of course, what else do they need? And of course, what they came up with was, well, books. People, people need books. And, and they decided uh, to take on as a project to uh, build bookshelves and get, uh, produce a small library for um, Congregation Sheriff Israel's homeless shelter, and I felt that that was a sort of a, a game changer, that instead of looking at homeless people as kind of creatures in need, um, to see them as people just like ourselves, who have human needs, needs for me need for meaning, um, and, and since the children find books meaningful, no doubt, they would find that uh, meaningful as well. And, and the, as you describe this, and you don't go into exactly the, the, same, the same incident, the same parts of it as I just described, but um, you include there a letter, which, which actually I had forgotten, a long letter which the, the teachers and the children wrote together. Um, 
and which was sent to various congressmen and representatives, um, and um, which sort of um, told these people in government um, how the kids uh, saw the issue of homelessness, um, how they hoped that um, their representatives in government would help, uh, and gave some really concrete suggestions. And when I read the letter um, so many years later, um, I said to myself, well, that's cute. Um, <laughs> No doubt, these five and six-year-olds imagine that somebody's actually getting their letter reading it and maybe is going to be compelled by it, but as adults looking back, um, they, they thought that the homeless people should build their own buildings and that would be a job that they could have. Exactly. They had some great ideas, um, they made, they made but, but the notion that this was somehow going to make change is something that kind of we look at and say, hmm, not, not so simple. And I know that, of course, what we were trying to do with the kids was, was to create both a sense of responsibility and also a sense of kind of self-efficacy, right? To, to kind of try to cultivate a, a, a sense um, that not only are we responsible, but that we have capacity to help. Because if we don't believe we have capacity to help, what we end up doing is turning away and trying not to see because we, we're, we're, we're paralyzed. And yet, when I read your book last Shabbat, um, I felt that paralysis. I, I, I came to the table, read, read those kids writing and said, how can we go about our day knowing that we live in a country, in a democracy, where we have a share in this and this is what's going on, and yet five minutes later my conclusion was, well, what do I do? I mean, I vote, but so what? So I'm wondering, uh, this is a long way of yeah. kind of setting up the, the question. You know, you talk about um, education not just as cultivation of, of thought, but as cultivation of dispositions toward action. And I'm wondering, you know, in the face of what you described in the Smith School or so many of the other problems that we are aware of, um, how do you imagine that um, we can educate people to, as they grow up, as they move past you know, the five and six-year-old stage to, to really um, both imagine that we have the capacity to act and to know how to do that? It's such a, it's a very hard question because we're living in really dark times. I mean, maybe all times are dark, but these are, these feel really dark. Um, and I often feel that there's, that there's no way to, uh, you know, to, to work for change on such, when the, when the need is so great. Um, but I think that the sense of working in community with people was something that I really took away from that, that meeting with the New York Cares man, mm -hmm. that, you know, each one of us separately is not that effective, um, or we can be effective maybe in very small targeted ways. But what was, to me, very powerful about his visit was also that he represented an organization that he created. You know, he, he had a brainchild. You know, this was his idea. We can do this. And then we saw all these posters all over New York City of the Statue of Liberty shivering and, and boxes for coats. And somehow he'd been able to bring that, you know, into, into being. And I really did begin to have the sense at that point, listening to him, that if he was working on that, and someone else was working on something, and someone else was working on something, and people would join forces in some way, that each of these instances, they would accrue to something greater than the sum of their parts. Um, and then it seemed to me like we're not just talking about something cute. We're not just talking, I mean, the Statue of Liberty shivering is a cute idea, right? But, but actually, coats were getting collected, and they were gonna be sorted, and they were gonna be given away. Um, and so it seemed to me that discrete projects that had an end in sight were meaningful. But, but I have to say, you know, having said that, um, 
after I discovered the Sam's Club problem, you know, the, that lip, I love books, but I looked at that, you know, that, that vista of books and I thought, I could never unpack this many books. Um, I was totally overwhelmed when I looked at them. And I thought to myself, well, what if I brought some friends? And I had a very good friend at the time, and she said, I'm coming. We're going to just, you know, we're going to get 25 people. We're going to come on a Sunday. We're going to shelve all these books. We're going to categorize them. And she was full of energy. And I've been working at the school already for a few months as a volunteer. And I said, it's not worth it. And she said, what do you mean? I said, we're going to put all these books on a shelf, and they're still not going to let the kids in the room because it's not a room they allow kids in anymore. The library is not for the kids. And I already knew the rules of the game so much that I thought that's a waste of energy. And one of my, the friend who actually had gained me access to the school said to me, I would never put a talented apprentice teacher in that school because she will burn out immediately. And I said, but what about the kids that are there? You know, I mean, are we gonna just forget about them? Are we gonna just give up? And she said, no, but I'm looking at the system. She said, if I want to train somebody who's going to be really, you know, has a lot of talent and a lot of potential, I want to put her in a place where she can make a difference, you know, over time. And so I do think that there is, there is this kind of realism that kicks in where you begin to think, what are the long-term effects? But that's very utilitarian thinking. And I really feel like, you know, the answer to my friend should have been, well, let's try to put the books on the shelves anyway. And you know, my, my answer to the person who said, let's keep good teachers out of this school because it won't be it won't serve the system, I still feel like the answer should have been like, what about this generation? What it, it reminds me of the Midrash about, you know, I, I can't remember precisely the, the detail, but there's there's the sense that this generation is falling under the bricks. Okay, it's fine that the next generation is gonna get out of Egypt, but this one's lost and they're never coming back. Let's move to something a little less. You know, one of the one of the striking things, and I think unusual things about about your book, is that you juxtapose anecdotes of middle school on the one hand with university um, and with early childhood. Um, and I think for most people, that's not uh, that's not necessarily a natural um, yoking. Um, but you do that because um, deep in your heart, you believe that the. Uh, core goals of education are shared across all of those ages and settings. Um, and beyond that, I think um, that you believe that the core methods of education uh, are shared uh, across, across those settings. Um, and also, um, I think it's striking for uh, somebody who most people know as a university professor uh, to, um, to, see, um, to see somebody like you uh, deeply believe that um, early childhood education um, is, so, uh, is so important. So uh, let, let, let's take those two in, in reverse order. If you could say something about, about that. Um, do you actually believe that what happens in school when you're five, and six, and seven um, ultimately makes a difference in people's lives? I believe that, first of all, of course what happens in school when you're five, six, and seven makes a difference in your life. Um, and I think I, I really do think that um, I'm not doing anything really the slightest bit different in the kindergarten, first grade classroom than I'm doing in the university classroom. I genuinely believe that. Um, it's the same attention to what people are actually saying, uh, the, the same modeling for students of listening to what the person next to him or her is saying, trying to think about responding to that thought and not only to say your own thought next, um, 
trying to come back to questions and problems with renewed, a kind of renewed depth, building a sense of some shared project and some shared endeavor, and a sense that you know everybody's voice is equally valuable and unique. Um, I think the sense of seriousness of purpose and of respect for each person in the room, I think that really dictates the nature of how you would teach. Um, I mean, I know how to lecture, and I know how to stand in front of a group and tell them what I think about something, but I'm not often that interested in doing that. I, I almost never, I can't remember the last time I taught a lecture course, honestly. Um, I don't think that's, it's not a way that I'm particularly interested in watching students learn. And so the, the engagement that I would want to see among students and the capacity to listen. This, I, I've moved to Israel in the interim, and there's a way in which teaching people to listen is now my main mission in life, um, because it is a very underdeveloped skill. And, and I'm, I'm joking, but I'm quite serious, that, that the capacity to stop already imagining what you're gonna say back, and really to just pause and wait and hear someone else out, even if you don't agree, um, you know, or you think you don't agree at, at the instant that they've begun. But there's something about that, but without that, there is no hope for any kind of meaningful connection or dialogue. So, so um, you have a, a beautiful description when it's in the aftermath of the New York Cares uh, episode. Um, you have a beautiful description in the book of um, your sense of how the sense of um, moral disposition is cultivated in children. And it goes beyond, uh, let's do community service, which of course was a regular part of the curriculum in the school, but it, it goes beyond that. Um, and you, you describe a, a vision of a kind of a day at school where every aspect of the school day, uh, whether it's math or what goes on in the park or whatever it is, the reading, writing workshop, um, is an opportunity uh, to cultivate a kind of moral sensibility. I wonder if you would share with us, um, I think it's, I wrote down page 56, if you would share with us that uh, description, which I found very, um, very eloquent. Yeah, I see where you are. Yeah. Um, okay, so, right, I was talking about um, what it meant to have that man from New York Cares come and talk to the class and what it stood for as well as what it actually, um, what it actually accomplished in and of itself. Okay. I remember thinking as I considered this circle of children that, you per that perhaps you find yourself wanting to take on such work later in life, the kind of work that this man was doing as, a, as building these volunteer projects. Maybe you find yourself wanting to take on such work later in life because you've tried to imagine how hard it is to be homeless. And then, finding that imagination takes you only so far, you've actually investigated it. And then you have an idea of both its trials and of what it might take to limit or obviate them. Maybe you take on such work because in your experiment of wondering what it feels like to be homeless or through your investigation, you realize that the person who is homeless is not only homeless, but is also a person. Maybe you feel the energy to take on such work because you know that people are not only the condition in which they find themselves, but possess reserves, untapped, often undetected. They're more than homeless or hungry. Maybe you enter such work or maybe you find time for volunteering even if you have other work because when you were a child, the adults around you suggested that they would help you. 
maybe you take on such work part-time or full-time, because your education has reflected to you a respect for all human beings that's acted out in the everyday life of your classroom. The ways you are taught to listen and speak to others, no matter who they are, what they look like, where they come from, how they speak. The ways you are taught to ask about what you don't know, to recognize that you don't know, to look to others, to books or other sources, to learn more. You feel a need to investigate. Your teachers help you cultivate the tendency to see both evident and unexpected connections and to respond to what you have found or made with the desire to deepen or improve it. Every day in school, you see and accept as natural that kids learn at different paces and in different ways. Competition, self-defeat, or self-congratulations ideally beside the point, a distraction from the real tasks at hand. What you need and what your teachers want to help you find is the poise to go about your own work independently with purpose, interest, and hope. Your own work goes on with or alongside others and you help them when they need it or seek their help when you need it. And always, always, there is the reality that the learning one does in school exceeds school. It concerns the world beyond the classroom. The learning one does outside of school can be brought back in, tested, affirmed, and refined in the company of teachers and friends. So I have one last question before we open it up, um, and it uh, relates to uh, where you are now, which is uh, teaching in Bar Ilan. And um, I was surprised to learn, uh, you talk about in the book, but you had told me this about a year ago, um, that the student body at Bar Ilan is really extraordinarily diverse, much more diverse than uh, your student body in Michigan. Um, you write that of the 15 students in the academic writing course that you were teaching at the time of writing the book, about half of them are Jewish and half are Palestinian. Um, so I wonder if you would tell us a bit more about the diversity uh, in your class um, and um, what challenges and opportunities um, it presents and um, how much difference those things make. You know, there are people who I know who um, believe that um, peace is made in the Isles of Rami Levy mm -hmm. um, and people who believe that those things really make no difference. It's just what happens in the Walls of politics uh, that matter, um, and um, wh where is change made, and what are the conditions? What are the conditions for uh, encounters actually making a difference? Um, so, as Deborah said, I, I'm teaching now in the English department at um, at Bar Ilan University, and in the last four or five years, there have been some really dramatic changes in the university demographics in Israel, and one of the most dramatic changes is that our student body in the English department is about 50% Arabs who live within Israel. They think of themselves as Palestinians, is what they call themselves, and about 50% students that are Jewish. And this, um, when I discovered this, you know, about two years into the job, that became clear that really the numbers had grown dramatically. Um, I was struck by, as Deborah said, the fact that the diversity was so dramatic in the classroom. And I had been teaching in classrooms where, for instance, in the United States, in Michigan, I'd had 18 students, let's say, in a seminar with maybe one African-American student. And it was very, very difficult to teach anything, for instance, about American slavery in a classroom that looked like that. It, it presented enormous challenges and difficulties. And I looked out you know, at Bar Ilan in this classroom, and I thought, well, you know, I can continue to teach Jane Eyre, which I've been teaching 
many years and it is a great novel and if you haven't read it you should read it and all of that having said all of that I thought I'm not sure that that's what you know the doctor ordered um, and I looked at the room and I thought there is an opportunity here it, it could be just a fact that we have this demographic shift or it could be an opportunity and I've really revamped um, what I teach pretty much entirely I have given the 18th and 19th century to other people who love them and I have decided that I want to teach almost exclusively autobiography. Um, and I teach literary forms of autobiography, but I also include in the courses a lot of asking students to write their own short autobiographical pieces and to share them. And one of the things that has come about in this process um, is that students are beginning to recognize that there are other accounts of Israeli experience. Um, you know, that Israeli experience doesn't just mean Jewish experience, that democracy actually means a majority and a minority culture, not just a majority culture. And over the course of last year, I taught a course where by the end of the semester, the beginning of the semester, we began with you know, Rousseau and Ben Franklin and all kinds of traditional um, and early autobiographies. But at the very end of the semester, we, we looked at texts that were much closer to home. Um, and probably the most controversial thing that we looked at was a text about the Palestinian experience of the Nakba which they consider the catastrophe of the 1948 war and losing their homes to Israel. And um, we were reading literature. I mean, so we're not reading histories, we're not reading journal articles, we're looking at literary texts. But by the time we got to that point in the semester, the things that I've been describing about a kind of culture of listening to others, of being able to imagine that each person has the right to speak, that each person has an, an equal value, um, offered the students a very different model by which to read the material they were reading. And so rather than argue back immediately and say, that's not true, I'm gonna fact find, I'm gonna tell you all the ways in which this account is false, students reflected on reading the text as reading someone else's life experience. And so they weren't any more focused on winning they weren't focused on winning the argument. They were focused on what they could take from the text that was before them. And there were really, I thought, very profound consequences. Um, and in the last few weeks of the semester, the discussion ranged um, you know, from the literary texts to things that were much closer to home about people's own experiences in Israel. Um, and I'm very conscious, again, of that question you raised at the beginning, you know, the difference between political indoctrination and values, um, character. And I, I think the agenda, you know, it's a word people love to use, but the agenda that I had in the classroom was to enact certain democratic values, um, which means protecting minority voices and giving them a, a platform. But also, you know, imagining a, a way in which both sets of voices and both sets of people um, could envision themselves in some kind of shared project. And I felt that that was actually happening. And the feedback that I got from students after the semester suggested that they felt it happened too. Um, and so, interestingly, I had students, both Jewish and Palestinian, thank me for teaching something political. Because what they said was, people say, you know, in politica, they say, you know, in, in the university, in politica, 
They, we, we're not, this is not a space for politics. This is a space just you know, for the thing you need to learn. So if you're learning physics, learn physics. If you're learning Jane Eyre, learn Jane Eyre. Well, they said, you know, I, I somehow was able to stay within the discipline that we were learning, but to acknowledge that there was something in the classroom that could be productive. So my sense was that students were hungry for that and that they were looking around the classroom and looking at these differences and just also feeling that there was something they're begging to be explored, but you know, without a framework, there's no way to do it. So my, my feeling is yes, these things do make a big difference. Um, and you know, do they produce peace resolutions? Obviously not, but I heard something a couple of years ago that made a lot of sense to me, which was that you know, maybe peace resolutions only come from above, but the extent to which they can be successful depends on the ground prepared. And so if the ground is prepared, you know, if you're sowing the seeds, and you know, I hope very, very much that there would be some kind of you know, official peace, um, official you know, kind of cooperation, coexistence, whatever you want to call it, but people need to be in, people need to have habits that will allow that to actually succeed. So I do think that there, there is something meaningful to what's happening. How meaningful, you know, how, how broadly does it spread? Hard to say, but somebody said to me over the weekend, you know, well, what would it look like if we were to make a book club in which Jewish Israelis, for instance, read Palestinian memoirs, period. You know, it's not the same thing because right. it wouldn't be groups kind of encountering each other, but what does it mean to be afraid of someone else's version? Um, so I, I think things can spread in interesting ways. Should we open it? Yeah. yeah. So questions from the world at large. Do you talk about the commonality between university teaching approaches and approaches to teaching younger children? I think is amazing. Um, but as parents of children who have recently gone into college, um, we encounter something that's prevalent in the academy, that teaching isn't primary on the agenda, but scholarship is. And that much of what's taught is not focused on a teaching and educational experience. So how do we change that around? How do we, how do we inculcate an educational experience for college students? I think one thing I have is like a tactical suggestion, depending on whatever your child is studying. I mean, try to find the teachers that know how to teach. Um, you know, and walk care about and care about it, right? And, and you know, for whom it is a priority. And that's really just tactical. That's suggesting that you're not going to be able to make that change broadly. But but I would also just say that it's actually been my experience, um, you know, in comparing, let's say, American universities to Israeli universities, that it is much less the case than it used to be in American universities that teaching doesn't matter. And in part it's because there's so many qualified candidates at this point that universities can choose people that are good scholars and good teachers. And so, you know, that's part of it. But but there's a there are I mean there's no university in this country that doesn't have divisions that are concerned with building better teachers. All universities at this point have resources for that. So I think there is some I think there has been movement in that direction. Um, what do you think? Yeah. Yeah. Like with everything else, it depends on the teacher. <laughs> and I mean, some universities value it more than others, um, but it, it depends on the... I mean, I took crazy things. I took introduction to Chinese thought in college because the teacher was amazing. And I think that's true. I think you just have to, to seek out the people who can teach because you want to be around them. And you just want to be a part of the thing they're doing. 
and learn how to do it yourself. Thank you so much for coming to speak to us today. I want to ask you about the work provided to build on the last point you made as, 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 you, as you discussed the classroom and the ability to delve into narrative and to see the other. I, I want to ask you, and I apologize if you didn't cover this before I came in, but in terms of the fact that the Israeli public school system is so divided among the communities, what can be done to help those encounters happen more often, more systematically, and at more at, at, at ages before people go off into the army, before coming of age takes place at, at, at those especially formative years? It's a really great question because, I mean, the school systems are very divided. Not only are the school systems divided, the curricula are are distinct um, and even when schools are learning the same subject so there's a there's like one sector for public religious schools and then there is a public public secular school and then there's Haredi schools and there are Arab schools and each of them has textbooks and even this is really amazing but there's a textbook for learning how to cross the street which one might ask why you want a textbook for that but nonetheless there is and they print different ones for each of these sectors because they want the children in the book to look like the kids in each community. And my son's school got the wrong books. They got the secular books, and he's in a religious school. And they sent them back and waited for the ones with the little boys in the kippot and the little girls in skirts, which I found astounding. You know, you can learn to cross the street you know, if someone's you know wearing a hijab. Also, you can learn to cross the street if someone's not wearing a kippah in your picture book. But somehow it was it felt very threatening, um, felt inappropriate. So that's the bad news. I think the good news is that I I have heard about initiatives um, of bringing school groups together, and again, depending on the skill with which that's done and the desire with which that's done. It, it could take. You know, I got a phone call last year from a representative of the Ministry of Education in Jerusalem, um, and it was a survey, and they were asking how much did we want our children to be meeting with kids of the same age from Arab schools. You know, so, so it's on the agenda, and I know that my daughter's school has programs with the secular school across the way. Um, is meeting six times a year going to really do anything? No, but you know, at least in places where the proximity, um, the, the geographical proximity is there, they might meet up again at the park. That's much less likely with Arab and Jewish kids, but it's more likely with, let's say, secular and religious. And I think also, um, you know, there, there are initiatives that you can seek out, but you have to seek them out still, I think. You know, it's, it's not, they're not easily available. Yeah, I'd like to share a thought about that as well. Um, first of all, we shouldn't um, minimize the amount of segregation that we live here. with right, right here. Just want to just want to say that. And um, whereas you know, I agree with Ilana, and I, I assume with with, with you uh, who raised the question that um, that it's important to encounter people unlike ourselves. I, I also deeply, deeply, deeply believe um, that the core dispositions of openness to another. Um, that, that the cultivation of those core dispositions um, does not depend on 
um, these kinds of diversities necessarily. In other words, you take any classroom, you take you know the classroom Ilana taught in had I don't know, let's say sixteen kids, yeah. ten kids, whatever it was. Each of those kids is deeply different from the other. Um, we are all deeply different from each other. And I, I very strongly believe that the ways in which we worked with children to hear each other um, and to be responsible to articulate their own ideas um, to each other, right? Which is also a responsibility. It's not only how you listen to the other person, but how you help the other person listen to you. Uh, not to make presumptions about what the other person likes, thinks, is about, and uh, not to label um, the other. Um, I, I would really, really believe that those core dispositions um, can be developed in any setting and that children um, bring those dispositions with them so that when those children who might have been in a very narrow. kind of, uh, you know, as, as the world plays out, a very narrow swath of, of, of homogeneity, uh, nevertheless when those people go out in the world, they, are, they have the dispositions and the openness and the skills, because it is also a matter of skills, um, to encounter and to get to know another person and to help that person get to know them. Um, so I, you know, and, and at the same time, there are plenty of places in the world where there's people of all sorts of kinds together, and everybody's just sitting with themselves, right? Um, you know, in their own corners, and you know, so having, you know, Israel likes to talk about about um, integration, right? But integration often just means putting a bunch of people in the same building without doing anything that actually uh, integrates, and yet integration can also happen without those people being there if you develop the kind of person who will be ready uh, when the time comes, when the when the encounter happens, to open themselves up and, and be open to that, to that other person. I think, yeah, the idea that you're, you're training for something yeah. in the way that you're working with people who are your closest kin, you know, right. can, can be, um, that's really, really important. You could have a very homogenous, you know, so to speak, socially homogenous group, but be teaching those values at the same time. Values and dispositions and skills. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. With, um, so there's a fairly large cadre of high school teachers here in this room, which I'm delighted um, to see. And um, it, it feels to me that um, there's high school teachers um, often feel a tension that I don't think you've uh, yet spoken to, and I'm really interested in hearing from both of you, which is that we all know that time is finite, and I think often in high school classrooms there's a tremendous tension between two different types of skills development, which is um, the skills that you've been talking about, which that I know the teachers in this room really value, the skills that um, allow people to really enter into civil discourse and to conduct themselves in a certain way in society. Um, but at the same time, the skills that are very content-based, and often high school is the time when justifiably parents, and I, I am looking at Tavora, like actually right at this moment in particular, only because I've had some conversations with you about high school students um, per se, where um, parents really are looking, and students themselves are looking for um, really um, being able to expand their skills and their, their content knowledge. And while I don't believe in ultimate dichotomies, 
um, and saying it's this or that. I also think it's not helpful to teachers if we ignore the fact that in teaching you're constantly making decisions and some things come at the expense of others and I think that um, it's a very common feature for uh, teachers of Leaning Day Kodesh to feel torn between um, the, their goals of helping develop human beings in the classroom and their goals of helping develop strongly educated um, participants in Jewish life. And I'd love to hear from both of you how you manage that. I, I guess I'm really wondering why the things seem to be conflictual at all. I mean, because you want to cover ground? It, it, because you, because it seems to me that you would be, that, that the ways that we're talking about, in, um, about you know, building a certain kind of human being, a certain kind of learner, that they are the path through which you encounter the content. So that they're not something that you can teach separately or spend time on separately. And I, so I'm, I'm, I think that's where I'm kind of losing the, tr the, the, the conflict. So I think that uh, the conflict comes externally. The conflict comes from, I completely agree with I you know. and, I, and, and embrace that, um, but the conflict comes from the fact that, um, I'm gonna start the sentence over again. I think there's something, and Laura and I have had a number of conversations about this, I think there's something different about um, Linde Kodesh where the canon is extremely broad and very broadly defined and math or science where usually there is something external telling you what you should be covering in the course of um, a year. And there's, for students in the day schools that this audience is drawn from, um, some pretty serious barriers to independent access to classical Jewish texts. And so I, I think that, like to give a really concrete example, making the more room you make for learners to talk with each other, I firmly believe the more you develop their intellectual skills and their ability to become intellectual learners, and along with that, all the other components we've talking about that we've been talking about, but they see very, very little text. Right. So, so I'll, I'll I'll share some thoughts with that. First of all, I think when when you know Ilana is talking about dispositions, you know what, when she went back, and you'll all re hopefully you read this when you read the book. When she went back to her MSU classroom uh, after after that crisis, um, she didn't just have them talk to each other more. She made them do some pretty hard research. You know, how many kids, each of you choose a school, how many kids in each of these schools are minority, how many kids in each of these schools are free lunch, how many kids in each of these schools are whatever. Do they have recess, do they have arts, do they have, you know, in other words, dispositions include not only listening to each other, but dispositions includes knowledge and responsibility toward the content, responsibility toward the tradition, if we're talking about the traditional uh, discipline, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, uh, you know, if there's anything, I, I'm, 
probably the only age I haven't taught in high school, but so I'll, I'll speak about my experience with Barabon. If there's one thing the school was about, and it was about many things, but if there's one thing that I think it was really importantly about, uh, it was actually rejection of these either ors. I just don't believe in them. Um, I mean, time is, uh, you know, Heidi Hayes Jacobs, uh, you're familiar with some of her work, used to say, time is our currency, and time is all we've got. So obviously, time is finite. Um, at the same time, if you're, if you're really teaching with a responsibility toward the text, toward the ideas, toward the skills, toward the tradition, uh, as well as toward each other, and I don't distinguish between those things, right? Listening to each other, listening to the teacher, listening to the text, listening to the commentators, listening to the scholar to whom you wrote a letter to find out why there's a small aleph uh, in Vayikra or whatever it might be. Uh, all of those are part of the same disposition of responsible, uh, open thinking. Um, and I do not see those things as they can take time from each other if we think that, you know, we only develop them these dispositions to talking to each other. But if we're talking to each other about deeply trying to understand this, and if trying to understand this means uh, developing strong skills, because how else do you understand this? Uh, and if all those things are tied together, then it's really, in my mind, not this or that. I think often it is seen as a this or that. I think, to my mind, that's deeply unfortunate, and we need to have models um, that uh, educators can learn from and be in conversation <laughs> with um, to learn a different way of seeing it, a different way of doing it, because I, I do not believe um, that, it's, that it's an either or. I think it's, I think it's one and the same and, and has to go hand in hand if we really uh, want to develop these dispositions. It's not just Ben Adam right? Uh, it's not actually, as far as I'm concerned, child-centered. I hate the term child-centered, so by the way, did John Dewey? It's got to be Torah-centered, and then we have to think what we mean when we say Torah-centered. Uh, I know what I mean when I say it, and we have to decide what we mean by that, and that's what we're teaching to. And so the discourse is, is, is about knowing how to understand that better. So at Beit Rabban, when a, when a kid said in a Chumash class at the age of six or seven, oh, you know, I had an idea, but then I was listening to the other ideas, and now I have a better idea. Well, is that, is that about kids listening to each other, or is that about kids trying to learn better? And the answer is, it's both together. It's not one or the other. That's, that's my thought about it. I would just add one thing to that, um, which is that I don't prize expression just for the sake of expression. So I don't like to have a classroom in which people feel, in which students feel they can just keep talking and talking and talking. Um, if I feel like things are, you know, have exhausted themselves, I'm going to step in and I'm going to redirect the discussion um, or try to find ways to offer something um, from my expertise and my my own experience in, and my own knowledge that can be meaningful. Um, so I don't like the idea of students just talking to each other in order to talk, but there's a goal. And if I need to advance that goal by sharing knowledge that I have, then I'm very, very happy to. And I won't hold back just because it's supposed to be time for them to work it out. Um, I, want, I want to be working together as Laura was saying, I think, you know, what, what is the goal at hand or what is the center? If the center is the text or Torah or whatever your, your, um, your, whatever your desire is focused toward, um, then it seems to me that the teacher and the students are working together and they're not, 
there's not a question of, of time somehow getting wasted because you're pursuing something um, at, at exactly the pace that needs to be pursued, um, ideally. Okay, well, I think we're gonna call the evening. We'll okay. Ilana will we'll, we'll be in the back uh, yeah, we'll signing books, I hope, and, uh, and uh, over to questions.